Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. We're back to Castlehaven, Kilbritton and Kenmare this week again in the concluding part of a two-part program continuing on from last week. War, sex, corruption and land. They were the main ingredients in the active lives of the Earls of Castlehaven. This week we conclude their story and look closely at the life and times of the third Earl. In Kinmare, hotelier and TV personality Francis Brennan rejoins me and recounts some more of his travel tales. And in Kilbritton, I meet up again with members of the Historical Society in the village. They have just launched their fourth historical journal. In it, you'll find a comprehensive article on one of the heroes of the War of Independence, Commandant Charlie Hurley. Strangely enough, a man not a lot is known about. So, wherever you may be on this particular Sunday evening, good evening and welcome to Where the Road Takes Me. Here in Kilbritton, I'll also be speaking to the parish priest, Father Jerry Kremen. He'll be telling me about the unusual stained glass cruciform in the church. Well, Kilbritton Historical Society's fourth journal is now on the shop shelves. Comprehensive and interesting are two of the adjectives we used to describe the articles in last week's programme. Bigger and better would be two more words to describe this publication, which is only in its fourth edition. Michael Larkin is the assistant editor, and he's been telling me how it all came about. The parish council actually uh, called a public meeting. They obviously detected that there was a good interest in history in the in the parish, and from that public meeting, a committee was formed. No, I, I wasn't involved at that stage, but I made a contribution to I think it was either the second or the third book. What we do each year, possibly, is we try and do um, field trips during the summer months, and we do try and get someone to give us a lecture during the the winter months and uh, I done a bit of research on the locality and organised one of the field trips last year I presume the area is steeped in history and being so close to the coastline that there's a lot of maritime history as well. There is indeed and what I actually done is just to get some of the old maps of the area and to pick out particular things along the coast. Point of interest was people found very strange was the fact that in the 1841 maps Harbourview Bridge didn't exist so we can only presume from that 
that that it was a famine project you know mm-hmm. and so we look I looked at different uh, things along the coast and uh, places of interest one of the other points of interest that some people I was surprised that local people didn't know about it was the, on the Aragadine River which is the border of our parish there are Senkeys and what apparently happened in years past is that uh, people use flat bottom boats they loaded up those boats on Harbourview and then on the high tides took the send up into the Aragadine River unloaded at these Senkeys and sold the send to the local farmers as uh, fertiliser. So points like that were I was able to, to point out on that uh, tour. Would you still be regarded as a blow-in or have you your Kilbritton passport yet? No, certainly not. Uh, <laughs> after 43 years I'm still a blow-in. You have to, you have to be born in Kilbritton Parish to be a Kilbritton yeah. person. <laughs> the chairman of Kilbritton Historical Society is Dennis O'Brien. By following kind of big footsteps of Sean O'Connor, our previous chairman, who did a great job in launching the journal uh, three years ago. And, you know, at the time we needed somebody strong in that position to, to take it to where it is today. And, you know, I have big shoes to fill now to do the same as, as Sean did. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an honour and a privilege to, to be chairperson. And we're a young society. We're, again, we're only in existence about four years. And the output that we've produced now much time is, is, is a credit to what is a very strong committee here. Hopefully it'll continue in the future. Many books have been written about various leaders of the Irish Republican Army during the War of Independence. Surprisingly, not a lot has been written, or not a lot is known, about the officer who commanded the 3rd Brigade in West Cork, and a man who paid the ultimate sacrifice. Charlie Hurley was born in Barley, near the village of Kilbritton, on March 19, 1892. He was educated in national school and passed the civil service examination at the age of 15. In the current edition of Kilbritton Historical Society's journal, Dennis O'Brien has begun a detailed account of his life. I kind of found growing up he was almost like a mythic figure, you know, everyone, the, the main facts that were known about him was the, the calamity of the Upland ambush and uh, the morning the Crossberry ambush when he, he single-handedly he had kind of run downstairs in Ford's house in Valley Murphy and, and came up against a, a squad of uh, Essex Regiment soldiers and he knew he was, being, he was going to his death and I'd say it takes a lot of courage and gallantry to give his life to, to save the other people in the house and that kind of struck a chord with me as a young fella and, but I didn't know anything about his early years or again like Tom Barry or Liam DC who had books written on him I, I found that the history on Charlie itself was pretty scant in some publications maybe only a page or two and at best they were just kind of summarising you know his later life and he died at a young age he was only about 27 so he packed a lot in his time there so when I did research on the article I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole I, it took me from his early years down to when he started working in, in Hobolan and then he moved from Hobolan to Castletown Bear and then up until his appointment as Vice Commandant to the Bannon Battalion. So that kind of formed part one of his story and there's a lot more to come in the next two parts as well but I found for me that it was just his commitment and his passion to the cause and being a very good administrator as well as being an excellent soldier it really took my interest. If ever a request is made for the Ballad of Charlie Hurley to be sung, the man that is usually sought to do so is Francie O'Brien from Kilbritton, a well-known character in the village, and indeed throughout the barony of West Cork and beyond. Francie sang the ballad back in 1972, when the GAA grounds in Bandon were officially opened and named after Charlie Hurley. While the sound quality isn't the best in this recording, you will, however, enjoy Francie's rendition of the ballad, sung at the graveside of Charlie Hurley in Clogoch on the 16th of July, 2014. There's a sense of Brishna Dukas here as well, as Francie's son is Dennis O'Brien, whom we've just spoken to, and chairperson of Kilbritton Historical Society. Hark, I will tell the forces of Ireland on hillside and lawn. 
When the brutal invader had crushed and dismayed her, and long had she slumbered, awaiting the dawn. Yet through to their birthright some brave hearts re-echoed the pulse of the dead that no tyrant can slay. And the foremost of all in the battle's red lightning, with the boys from West Cork, came this man from Bondi. As the great dawn of morning swept over the green hill, where wounded a while in seclusion he lay, his merciless Four men drew nearer around him, while his boys, unsuspecting, were deep in the fray. But he gallantly fought as they bore in around him, and soon his cruel rivals were lying at his feet. But while dashing away, Deadly guns from an outpost, still the bravest of hearts that for freedom did beat. Our foes rode that day for nearby at Crossbury. Their forces were scattered like dead autumn leaves. Though fearful, the loss of you, brave Charlie Holly, yet glorious the vengeance that justice retrieves. For he died as the great dawn of freedom was breaking, like Brian of old, when Plantarth was just one but this nation in prayer and with pride will remember his name shall be sung to the last setting sun In the mid-1800s, Ireland experienced the beginning of an insatiable demand for builders, architects, stonemasons, carpenters, sculptors, carvers and artists in various media, including stained glass. Podrick Pierce's father, James, a young sculptor from Birmingham who had been reared in great poverty, took the opportunity to come to Ireland and set up business in Great Brunswick Street, now Pierce Street in Dublin, in partnership with Edmund Sharp around 1860. The firm's head sculptor was Patrick Tomlin, another English artist who had come to Ireland. 
Patrick Tomlin later left James Pierce to set up a studio under his own name and was succeeded in Pierce's by his nephew Charles Edward Tomlin. And that's a quote from an article written in the current edition of the Kilbritton Historical Society's journal by Kilbritton Parish Priest Father Jerry Kremen. His article is on the beautiful stained glass cruciform which can be seen behind the altar in Kilbritton Parish Church. This beautiful creation was the work of Charles Edward Tomlin's son, Stanley. He was born in uh, 1916. He apprenticed himself and worked with the great Harry Clark studio from 1932 until 1941. He was the famous guy who did all the yeah, stained glass back yes. in the early 1920s. Oh, yes, course, yeah. yeah, one of the, the best we have, it seems. And uh, Stan Tomlin was there in 1941 and there was wartime, business went down and Harry Clark's for to save the as many families as could, I suppose, they left go only the unmarried employees. At that stage then, or probably a couple of years later, that A.W. Lyons engaged him for this. Now, the window that we have here, he made the three windows actually, but that cruise farm window must have been commissioned by the Paris Peace at the time. He was Father Jeremiah Coakley, who did, he built the parochial house down there where I'm living. He did a lot of building, built the wall of the church here. He did a lot of building uh, in his time here. And um, the window was donated by Geoffrey O'Connell of Barrelfield House. What we see is that this window was made for Kilbritton Church there, is, uh, and after the time, Times 1951, an exhibition in Dublin of stained glass, and the Times says the, the chief exhibi- exhibit was a cruciform window for Kilbritton Church, County Cork, which mm. is nice to see that there. And this was the, the origin of our information there. It's the second uh, cruciform window that Stanley Tomlin made. The first one was made for the factory, which used to be the old in, in Rings Inn, the glass bottle factory. That had a big area there, a lot of buildings, and including a chapel. And sometimes in the, sometime in the 1940s, they got this cruciform window made for that church. And... Uh, this is the first that Stanley Tomlin made, and the second was for our, for our church here in Kilbritton. Yeah, and what a talent it was to make something like absolutely, that. Absolutely, absolutely. I had the pleasure of uh, of visiting his son, Alan. Stanley Tomlin died relatively young at the age of 60, 1976, and um, his son took over, his son Alan and wife Barbara took over the business, and, uh, and I, I met them. And I went to Dublin to meet him during the summer there and she showed me all the stuff his father made and got photographs and got great information about that and they were quite busy. Stan Tomlin himself didn't do that much work in Cork but he has a lot of work all over the Midlands particularly. I saw some of the stuff in Roscommon or Knockrock a little village shot like myself. He has some beautiful panels there and um, I say Alan was celebrated his father did a lot of work. Most of Alan's work by the time he came on most of the church work was done if you like and um, he did a lot of work for clubs and for hotels and that, you know, scenery and birds and fishes and things you like to put up in doors of hotels or big houses and so that was, you know, he has a tremendous amount of work done and uh, he's mostly doing restoration now, that kind of thing. Finally, the church itself here then, how far back does that? Around um, 1790 or that. Now, there was an, an older church here, I think. The church we have here, as far as I know, would be the two aisles we have here. It was faced the other way. Our church is cross-shaped and actually what the cross arms of the church now we say, where the church one time, a straight church going east and west, then the, the main aisle and I suppose the, the sanctuary sacristy were added in at some stage later on and uh, it was um, consecrated sometime in the 1800s here, yeah. And that was Father Jerry Kremen, Kilbritton Parish Priest. Well, before we leave the village, let me just say that you do not have to be born and reared here or have any connection to the parish whatsoever to really enjoy this beautifully produced, interesting and well-researched journal. 
My thanks to everybody involved with the Historical Society. Their fourth journal is available in many outlets, both within and outside of Kilbritton. Coming up next, from Kilbritton, we hop over the county bounds to Kinmare once again to meet hotelier and TV personality Francis Brennan. That's coming up in part two of Where the Road Takes Me. From the village of Kilbritton, I'm back over the county bounds and back to the Park Hotel in Kinmare to meet Francis Brennan. His new book is entitled A Gentleman Abroad and tells of his travel tales over the years. But writing a book on such a subject was never on his bucket list. No, I never wanted to write any book, and that's my fourth book now, would you believe, all right? The first book I did was on etiquette and manners and sort of funny stories to illustrate that point, right? Then I did a memoir, just all about life and all the rest. And then I did last year the household management one. And then this year I have I brought, by continent, I told stories of times I spent there, like in North America and in Europe and in Africa and Australia, whatever. And we broke it down that way. So it was just an, a way of introducing people to different places to go on holidays and stories that ensued as when I was there. That was really it. You've had your adventures and I suppose your, your mishaps during your holidays as well. Talk to me about the one in America with the floods and the Blue Rinse ladies. America does everything big, even floods. Yeah, listen, we could have had that here this morning with the rain. We had a, uh, we had a rain shower here this morning. I was look, be looking for before late. No, we were in uh, San Diego and John, my brother, was with me that year. It's a long time ago now. It's probably 20 years ago. He came out to work with Tourism Ireland. They called him the bag man. He was in charge of all the luggage and everything else. But there's 40 people travelling now so it's a lot of luggage I can tell you so when we were in San Diego anyway and it was it had been pouring rain all that day and then when we were there there was a ferocious thunderstorm so John and I went down then after us we came out there was this huge flood on the street and then there was a bridge like a proper there's a river and a bridge going across it from this side of the street to that side of the street and interesting enough they're well used to this flooding river obviously Mm -hmm. because the sides of the bridge are on cantilevers and they move up you know like when the water's coming from the left to the right the bridge opens what would be the normal part where you walk across it just cantilevers up and the water now is allowed to go across the road and not cause too much flooding but there was flooding so anyway these four ladies came in what I know as a Lincoln town car which is kind of the biggest of the monster cars in America and there was four elderly ladies in it and I'm sure they were coming from bridge or bingo or something of that nature that's what they looked like now it was 10 o'clock at night so we're standing on the path you see and these ladies they drive out and I keep thinking they're going to stop shit they must stop you can't get through that flood I mean it was really high okay no no they kept going all right now I would say that the poor lady driving didn't even realize there was a flood to be quite honest she was probably too low to see it the water anyway the car goes stops of course all right and then you see the lights dimming like pitch black all right so now they're in the car right so one of the ladies in the front she managed to get the window down I don't know how she did that because I'm sure it was electric maybe it wasn't she got the wind the window down okay now the water was right up the door 
of the car like right up and she sat out on the thing and anyway then on our side of the flood a coast guard arrived and John thought that was hysterical because we're in the city of San Diego and the coast guard are here you know we're meant to be like we're like we're looking for the fire brigade or something in Ireland but the coast guard came anyway lo and behold coast guard appeared the other side of the of the flood as well right so the ladies were stuck so they had to shoot an arrow from this side to that side over to the other boys the other coast guard guys and they got the rope at the one fella got properly dressed up and went out from our side and another lad came out from the other side with a little dinghy boat mm-hmm. and they took the four ladies out of the car they put them up on the roof they got them out first in case the car filled up with water because it was really that it was a fierce flow of water the four four elderly ladies sat on top of the car and then they took them one by one back to the other side not to our side to the other side and they were saved and rescued by in the middle of the city by the coast guard Travel plans or holiday plans don't always go to plan. Now and again, little inconveniences and mishaps disrupt everything. For instance, getting arrested might come under such a heading. But Francis Brennan tells me that the word arrested is a little too strong to describe what happened here. No, arrested is a strong word. Oh, is it? Oh, I beg your pardon. We were detained, oh, detained rather than yeah. arrested. Yeah, we were on a, a trade show down in South America and we flew from Rio to San Paulo and we were going from San Paulo to New York. That was the routing we were on, okay? So we got into Rio, into San Paulo and there was other nationalities travelling with sort of Spanish people and Portuguese people on the same promotion because it was a small luxury hotels promotion which have hotels all over the world. So we're, in the, we're checking into immigration and I'm in the line and I see my two Mexican girls up at the front of the desk, okay? And there's a few words and then I see one of them crying, like bursting out crying and blah, 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 blah. So I think, what's wrong with the girls? So I step out of the queue and I run up along, pass people out and I say, you all right, girls? No, she says, he's using... Um, different language than we use now the Portuguese and the Spanish are quite similar right mm-hmm. but obviously he was there's a bit of like a Cork and Dublin kind of bit of fun if you know what I mean right between the countries and that's and the language so you can use certain words that mean like more endearing than other words right, right. so he was using the on endear is that a word on endearing words you know what I mean he was using words that were not appropriate I think not now bad language but whatever way the language works okay so they were saying to him no you don't say it that way you say it. and he said sorry anyway I said to him, I didn't understand Understand the principle of what they were talking about at the time. So anyway, I was kind of giving them a bit of support anyway. And next minute, these two fellows arrive and they say, follow us, right? So I thought, what? So off we had to go. He, they put me into a room on my own and they took the two girls somewhere else, right? So I'm thinking, cripes almighty, what's going on here? Because I wasn't, I was only trying to be helpful. So anyway, I'm in the room 20 minutes or 30 minutes, okay? We have a connecting flight, so I'm watching the clock. So anyway, this man comes back and I said, excuse me, could you please explain what's, go- what's going on? Because I'm a bit lost. No, he says, your colleagues were uh, treated an officer with disrespect. Oh, I said, no, I didn't understand. They told me afterwards, the girls told me afterwards that it was him treating them with disrespect. But anyway, I said, oh, well, I said, I'm, I'm not, like, I don't speak Spanish and I don't speak Portuguese, so I wouldn't know. I said, I would be, I couldn't be accused of that mm-hmm. because I wasn't involved. And he says to me, follow me. So anyway, he brings myself, then he would go up along the corridor and he takes two other girls. 
and he brings uh, the three of us go he says follow me so he takes us along Carter downstairs out onto the where the planes were onto the what they call the apron I'm thinking cripes almighty where is he put us into a car and drove off at like 60 miles an hour across under planes and kept going 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 I thought oh no what are they going to do with us now? Are they going to shoot us out at the perimeter of the airport and like that'll be the end? No one knows where we ever went. So anyway, we arrived then at another stairs, okay, under a plane, United, because I knew we were flying United, and he brings us up the steps from the airport, apron of the airport, up into what is the waiting room to go for the flight, like yeah. the, the departures hall. But now we're there, we don't have any boarding passes because everybody had to come through the system to get there with a boarding pass. So then I'm looking for somebody to see can they help. Okay, so eventually I find an American girl that works for United. I said, listen now, I don't really know what's going on. But I said, there's 20 minutes to the flight. We don't have any boarding passes. I said, like we were detained and brought in the back door. Oh, she says, that's most unusual. Anyway, she spoke to her supervisor. Anyway, with like 10 minutes to go, they issued us with three boarding passes and we managed to get out. But it just shows you, like, I, 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 like, I, I don't know what could have happened. To be quite honest, you never um, know really. In no, when you're in a foreign country yeah. and you have no, and you can't speak the language and you don't know what's going on. But we survived that one. But at the middle of it all, I thought, ah, oh, I'm not sure what's going on here. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it New York, New York These vagabond shoes Are longing to stray Number one, New York. Is it as fabulous as they say it is? Tell you now, New York. I love New York. But if you stood on the street in New York, on the same spot, for 12 hours during the day and didn't move you will be exhausted at the end of night because the noise the car horns the sirens the people talking fellas roaring and shouting it's brilliant such a wonderful place I mean just to tell you now the last time I was there I was having breakfast in a diner okay I went in there was two ladies on my right young girls like in their 30s right they were bawling their eyes out with over fellas alright some fella had left and she was her boyfriend was gone and uh, that went on on my right immediately beside me and then two tables down from me was a single lady who was having a chat with an American comedian called can't remember now keep going an old famous comedian now she was talking to this comedian as though she was at the table and she'd die laughing <laughs> and then she'd get very loud the staff had to go over and say to her like whatever her name was Mary keep it down keep it down okay they were well used to her but when she left and I was there for, I stayed for nearly 40 minutes because I was enjoying all sides with the excitement right? when she left the, the, I said to her he says she has uh, she chats all the time to this American comedian as though she's with her but she's not with her the poor woman is a little bit you know but she wasn't doing any harm but that's New York and they do breakfast very well there they do yeah they always do yeah a greasy breakfast now not good for, yeah in a diner they only do a greasy breakfast which yeah. I only treat myself to that now maybe once in seven days when I'm out there yeah. but I enjoyed it that day one more country Africa now me being a huge animal lover this is somewhere I'd love to go because right. it's full of reserves and all that yeah. sort of thing yeah yeah I've been in Africa three times so we did the um, grand tour there last year and was, that was brilliant because we walked with cheetahs which was like subsequently it was like I was thinking was that we really do that because there were two beautifully fully grown cheetahs 
that were absolutely magnificent and like they walked directly in front of us the lady beside me one of the girls beside me like he, he swished his tail and hit her her knee they were that close right yeah. and on the television they have great shots of me looking at the cheat and talking about him but we had been prior to walking with the cheetahs we had been in a game park called Subaya where they have four lines right and then four or five weeks after we left the lines ate three poachers that broke in to the reserve because they were trying to get the rhino horn they have rhinos as well so they broke in anyway the lions killed them well they don't really know because they never they did they, they found shoes okay and they didn't reveal anything else but like there wasn't much left after the lions were finished with the with, the, with them but there was they believed there was three poachers killed so we, now we hadn't been walking with them we were in a like a minibus type of thing you're high up you know what I mean? we did go close to them and they were there but so you know there's always the risk when you're there but it is wonderful to see giraffes rhinoceros water buffalo you know cheetahs like fantastic like just to think but there's a lot of commercialism in South Africa now where they really are big zoos rather than game parks mm-hmm. you know yeah. they're like they're just you know they're just there like sort of and you can see them and all the rest but still it's a wonderful experience sunsets are supposed to be beautiful there yeah absolutely gorgeous I have photographs of my camera of fantastic sunsets uh, out over the savannah you know like the beautiful sunsets in the evening time and um, you might get a silhouette of a, of a giraffe or something that would, in a shot that would be beautiful so it's a great country but it's completely different than Ireland so it's, it's a great experience for people to go it's up to you Finally, two of my guests on this evening's programme afford me the opportunity to seek their opinion on the many effects Brexit will have on this country. Mind you, Brexit generally and its effects are changing almost on a daily basis. Francis Brennan, of course, as a hotelier and director of Falcher Ireland, gives me his opinion on what lies ahead for the tourist industry in this country. Yeah, well, it will definitely have an effect. It will affect Dublin hugely, I imagine, because they get a huge amount of short break business into Dublin from the UK, right? That we uh, here at the park, our British business is very small. It's only about two percent of our business, which is very little to be, you know. So I wouldn't have a personal worry. But of course, it's not good for the country. And listen, there's so many permutations. I did hear yesterday where the flights were agreed between countries with the UK because if when it when it hits on the 29th of March, flights and all that will be in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. Now we had a board meeting. I'm a director of Fall Challenge, and we had a board meeting. Tuesday and the word there is that they will sort the flights prior to the date but it'll be down to the wire which is important because if you haven't got access you know and the rules and regulations of and then somebody was just telling me that in Ireland a lot of the airlines use Ireland for repair and you know um, no, for you know what, what do you call it maintenance you know, yeah. that's the word yeah. I want maintenance yeah um, that they have maintenance and wait till you hear now a lot of the British companies the spare parts here now won't be licensed by the British after they go out of the EC so the airline business can be left with a pile of like screws or engines or whatever it might be on the shelf which they can't put into a British plane because the legalities of it won't be they're not under the EU, EU rules anymore so right. like when I heard that, just God, there's so many permutations on what might or mightn't happen. It would be frantic, you know. But I don't think tourist-wise it'll be good for the country. And finally, to complete our whirlwind tour this evening, I'm back in West Cork for part three as we conclude the story of the three earls of Castlehaven or the Audleys of Cork and Kildare. Michael Keane, author of the book of the same name, concentrates on his favourite earl, the third earl of Castlehaven. He became a leading commander in the Catholic Confederacy and led the resistance to the advancement of Cromwell in the country, which can't have been a bad thing. Join me for part three in a few moments.
In the final part of this evening's programme, we conclude our look at the three Earls of Castlehaven as we concentrate on the life and times of the third Earl. I'm joined again by former UCC lecturer Michael Keane, whose book on the Earls covers from the Battle of Kinsale to the Great Famine and beyond. Well, bearing in mind that the third Earl was partly responsible for his father's execution and the list of charges against him which brought it about, you would think that the third Earl would make a decision to keep a low profile, but nothing could be further from the truth. Although described as a man of peace, he still had 43 military engagements under his belt as he became one of the leaders of the resistance to Cromwell. Even though, as history has it, all was futile in the end. Still, the third Earl was one of the very few who could afford to boast of military success against the Cromwellians. So, according to Michael Keane, the third Earl did not intend to live a life of solitude. He was a Catholic and a staunch Catholic. When the Catholic Confederacy uprising started in Ireland in the 1640s, he tried to join the side, the English side, I suppose, that were suppressing it initially. But they basically said, you're a Catholic, and uh, they put him in prison in Dublin. He managed to escape from prison because he felt he was facing probable ex- execution, even though he had all this land in Ireland. And he went to Kilkenny and joined the Catholic Confederacy there. He had a little bit of military background, but sufficient for them to make him as they called it at the time, commander of the horse, which means in, char- in charge of the cavalry, which was a, a, a very senior appointment, I suppose, in military terms. So he was uh, a leading commander in the Catholic Confederacy uprising in the decade of the 1640s, right up to and including the Cromwellian period. And he was one of the few, actually, that had a few successes against Cromwell and the Cromwellians. Yeah, not too many had. Uh, very few, yeah, but he, yeah. he actually had a few. On the Cork side of things, he had 12 military engagements altogether all in County Cork, even though he travelled the whole country. He was in all four provinces engaged in military battles of different kinds. Spent a lot of time in Ireland, actually. Uh, he spent most, well, yeah. he spent all of that time in Ireland, yeah. He liked hunting, apparently, so when he when he wasn't fighting, he was hunting. Hunting somebody else. Yeah, yeah hunting, <laughs> hunting foxes, if not yeah. hunting, um, or boars, maybe they yeah. had at the time as opposed to the military side of things. But he was very, very successful. He took over all of Munster, really, and all of Cork, north of the River Blackwater, at one stage, and he was commander in control of it. There were a few peace moves, interestingly, which went a long way towards peace during the course of the Catholic Confederacy uprising, and he was the one that they went to, to mediate on both sides. So obviously, at heart, reading about him, and he wrote a very interesting memoir in the few years before he died. He lived a long life. He seemed to be the, the, the mediator that they turned to. So he was really, I'd say, a man of peace at heart. But it just never quite quite worked. There were too many factions and too many sides to it. And it was in England as well, the parliamentarians versus the royal family, I suppose, was part of it there. So it was a bigger war than just Ireland. And um, it was a really successful military career. Most of his engagements, insofar as the Catholic Conspiracy had successes, they were down to him.
And what was the Catholic Confederacy? Who were they? It started in the north of Ireland. The clans were largely dispossessed, the remnants of them, after the flight of the earls. So they made the final bid, really, I suppose, to get back, rest some control for themselves of the territories that their ancestors formerly held. That was suppressed, but then it gradually spread throughout the country and it became a Catholic versus Protestant battle for you know, almost who, who was going to own Ireland, I suppose, really. It was a very major conflict throughout the country. All the Catholics, not just native Irish Catholics now, but those who were English and had got estates who also clung on to Catholicism were part of it. And the old Anglo-Irish who came in with the Normans uh, 400 years earlier, a lot of them were Catholic and they joined it as well. So it was all these groups came together to make their final stand for Catholicism. The trouble about that was that there were factions within them. And, you know, they, they, some of them wanted peace and some of them said we'll fight on, a bit like our civil war in modern, more modern times. And so the, that didn't help their cause at all. It lasted for the whole decade of the 1640s, enormous slaughter all over Ireland. And Cromwell came in the end with a more powerful army and put an end to all of it, I suppose, really. The second Earl of Castlehaven, who was left totally in control at the end to resist Cromwell, uh, defended Waterford, for, as one example, totally successful. Cromwell failed to take Waterford, one of the few places he failed to take. And he also had a major success in a tie in Kildare, which was a garrison town. Toast where my wife comes from, actually, so I know about that one. And he routed the Cromwellians there as well. But in the end, the Cromwellians were just too powerful. He put a staunch defence in Limerick as well against Arthur and Cromwell's son-in-law. But in the end, the, Cromwells, the Cromwellians won and he fled to France. He lost most of his land, but he held on to the West Cork lands. They lasted to the eighth Earl, and then he was childless, and so they lost the earldom at that stage as a title, but they kept the family name all the time, down to modern times, Lord Audley. So the Lord Audleys owned large estates in West Cork right down to the post-famine period. Ireton, who was Cromwell's son-in-law, did approach the third Earl with what seemed like an offer he could not refuse. Leave Ireland, go to England, and all would be forgotten. He would be given an estate and allowed to live the rest of his life in peace. However, as we know, there is no such thing as a free lunch, and bearing in mind the treacherous people he was dealing with, the third Earl politely refused their kind offer. He felt staunchly that, you know, Catholicism was very important to him and he would have been pressurised not to be a Catholic was one part of it. In later life, he was in the House of Lords in London and he spoke to defend Catholicism, but they concocted an oath of allegiance then and he led the Catholics of the House of Lords out. They wouldn't take the oath of allegiance, uh, which is, again, has modern connotations, maybe. Mm. So he stuck to Catholicism rigidly and uh, it wasn't a good time to be a Catholic that, that century. In all his military engagements, and you, in the book, you make a list of his military engagements, mm. and I think it was at over 40 or something, yeah, 43. and most of those would have been victories. Most of them were victories. Now, some of them wouldn't have been major victories in the sense that he would have besieged a castle, but the people in it would have um, surrendered very quickly. But others were very major conflicts then. The trouble was that the few that were defeats were the very major ones in the end, especially with the Cromwellians, yeah. and, you know, you just they, they were unable to stand up to the Cromwellians in the end. He came with his new model army, as it was called, and was just too powerful, and was so utterly ruthless as well. I was going to ask you that, actually, yeah, that in yeah. the case of Cromwell and Mountjoy and Carew, were they as ruthless and as brutal as we're led to believe? Yes, they were. They yeah. were, yeah. And any any reading that one does, one sees that very quickly. Interestingly, I, I mentioned a tie. When um, the third Earl captured a tie, he had a whole lot of Cromwellian prisoners and he sent them off with a note to Cromwell saying that I am sending you back your prisoners and I hope that you will reciprocate if you ever capture mine. And he said Cromwell went off to Goran and could three days later and started the lot was the answer he got and that was that was tipping and that would describe the man that he was absolutely yeah. yeah
Third Earl continued with his military career throughout Europe before returning to England and Ireland during the restoration of Charles II. He became active in the House of Lords in Westminster, spending a considerable time in Ireland, where he died suddenly in County Tipperary in 1684. The title of Earl continued until John, who was the eighth Earl, married and childless, died in 1777. The earldom now became extinct, although the title Baron Audley continued. Fast forward to the 20th Baron Audley, who watched as Poxley's copper mining industry in Allahys on the Barry Peninsula thrived. He decided to try his luck in the business himself near Ballady Hob. In addition to copper mining, Audley also developed two slate quarries and employed 500 men. He sold out in 1852, but in between managed to conjure up a very bad reputation for himself. The Poxleys in Alahy were hugely successful in mining and was wonderful for Alahy's in that area. Ancient copper mining existed in the Mizzen Peninsula also uh, in the land that Audley's owned going back to the Bronze Age, but it, nothing had happened until they saw the Poxleys being successful. So the Lord Audley's of the time, three in succession during the first half of the 1800s up to the Great Famine, got involved in mining there. And they opened four mines, all south of Belly the Hob, and one of them on Horse Island, actually, off, off, just off the coast. It was never really a commercial success. Quite a bit of investment, and some of the remnants of, of those mines are still down there. There's a chimney stack that is knocked by lightning in 2002. That was a great landmark until it was knocked down. So those four mines were never really successful, and the whole venture got into debt. But then the second of the three Lord Ordleys involved in mining met this notorious... Um, fraudster Joseph Pike. Um, he got involved with the Lord Audley in mining in Cork. They concocted this idea then that they'd launch the company and the stock exchange in England and get very wealthy investors to put money into it and said they had inexhaustible supplies of copper in West Cork, just like uh, Alahiz. And wealthy investors fell for it. The trouble was no copper arrived. They lived high in the hog for a few years and um, one day eventually the big shareholders had become worried because they just weren't <laughs> seeing any copper. And while our two friends were off at Ascot Races. One of them raided the offices and found the real story. And there was a series of very complicated court cases then in both London and Dublin, whereby the investors were trying to get all their money back. None of the judges would find Lord Hartley guilty. They couldn't come to say that a peer of the realm like that could do anything untoward. And they were never found guilty, even though it was the most obvious case of fraudulent misrepresentation one could possibly come up with. So the whole thing descended into chaos at the end, and sadly, that all happened just at the time of the Great Famine. And there was quite a lot of featuring of the Audley estate in what's written about the Great Famine in, and the Mizzen Peninsula. Father Pat Hickey's wonderful book oh, yeah. features it quite a bit. And it was an estate with major debt, with a whole series of middlemen and agents working down along from Lord Audley at the top, who, of course, was looking for money because it, this was the, t the, the, the next successor again, mm. because he was in debt there. And um, sadly, there was hundreds of unemployed miners. And uh, as Father Pat Hickey said, the Mizzen Peninsula lost 40% to its population over the, that decade of the 1840s, which was absolutely tragic. And the, the mining story is very much part of it. Yeah. Michael Keane's book, The Three Earls of Castlehaven, is available in all bookshops. Well, Michael is a former agricultural economics lecturer at UCC. And before I let him go, I want to seek his opinion on Brexit and its possible effects on agriculture in this country. But then again, who knows? It's a topic that changes not on a daily basis, but almost on an hourly one.
Well, Theresa May is going with the agreement now to the House of Parliament. Everything looks as if she won't be successful there. If she was successful, it would be okay. It would be quite manageable from the point of view of Irish agriculture and food. If we revert to the worst case scenario, which is the no deal Brexit, it will have quite serious consequences, especially for the cattle and beef sector and also for the dairy sector and particularly those who are involved in the supply of cheddar cheese to to Britain, such as the Carberry Group, for example. But cattle and beef would take the first big hit. My expectation is that at the end of the day, everybody would be a loser in a no-deal Brexit and that enough good sense will prevail with everybody that we won't get to that. But you wouldn't rule it out. You wouldn't rule it out at this stage, politics being politics. Hopefully something close to what Theresa May is trying to sell will be the outcome at the end of the day. If it does, it will be manageable. But the worst case scenario or something close to the worst case scenario is also still a possibility. Is there the possibility that Brexit could be forgotten about and go back to where we were? I mean, that's possible. Is it the European Court of Justice who made a ruling that that can be done? Well, the British people voted to leave and I would be surprised if they would be voting in the short term. Again, most people don't like if they have said something in a, in a vote yeah. that people think, would come think, back a second time. Again, yeah. Maybe in the course of time there might be a, a vote again and Remain might win uh, or go back into the EU as it would be at that stage would win. But uh, just this is only a personal opinion. I don't see that happening for a nice period of time. I think something by way of a trade agreement will emerge at the end of it. Very difficult to predict what that will be. If it's close to um, what Theresa May has as the agreement at the moment, that will be managed without too much damage to the Irish economy. But there is the fear, of course, that, that it could be uh, something close to a no-deal Brexit, which would, would have much more serious consequences. Yeah, and you, you believe the big losers would be the agriculture industry in this That's country? That's the sector most at risk, yeah. Agriculture, and particularly the, those in the, in the cattle and beef business, and to a fair degree, those in the dairy business as well, who, who specialise in supplying the British market. Now, the dairy industry has become quite diversified, so it's less exposed than, than the cattle and beef sector. We've closed up to just over 20% of our dairy products go to Britain at this stage, but it's double that in the cattle and beef sector. My thanks to Michael Keane, Francis Brennan and members of Kilbritton Historical Society. Thanks to John Foot on Sound and you for your company over the last hour. We're back on Sunday evening next with another edition of Where the Road Takes Me. But until then, from all on the programme and myself, John Green, take care and do have a good week. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.